everyone. This is From the Newsroom, the semi-occasional podcast from the Holland Sentinel's editorial department. I am Sarah Leach. I am the editor of the Sentinel, and I am joined by Audra Gamble, our public safety reporter and newly appointed managing editor. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm well. How are you? <laughs> Great. How's double duty doing? It's gr- I, I love wearing a bunch of hats all at the same time. It makes my head look really good. You fit in well. <laughs> well <thanks. laughs> so you have been working on a case that has made many headlines over the last few years, um, and this is regarding Ottawa County's only juvenile lifer is yes. what they've they're called. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the context of this case and why it's back in the news? Sure. So the term juvenile lifer um, applies to someone who was sentenced to life in prison when they were still a minor. So in this particular case, for the last two days, I've been at a resentencing hearing for um, a man from Holland named Juan Nunez, and he was convicted of murder in 1997. He was 16 at the time. Now he's 38. Mm-hmm. Um, but he shot and killed Scott Anderson, who was 22, at a armed robbery gone wrong at Peretti's restaurant. So um, we've been kind of rehearing a little bit of the details of the case and then looking at what Mr. Nunez has done with his life since then in terms of his prison record and things like that to determine whether he is worthy of a shorter prison sentence. Mm -hmm. Now, these kinds of cases have actually um, caused some, I don't know what the right word is to to describe it. Um, it, It was a surprise, I think, to a lot of people who felt that on both sides, whether they are know the person who's incarcerated or somebody who was a victim of a crime. Um, They were surprised that some of these cases were going to be reheard in in a certain way in terms of resentencing. Um, When did this, the, the decision come down from the courts for these cases to be reviewed? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of old partially healed wounds here that have been reopened, I think on, on, both sides of this story. It was definitely an emotional couple of days in court. Yeah. Um, So the reason that this resentencing hearing happened is that in 2016, the Supreme Court heard a case. It was Miller versus the U.S. And the Supreme Court decided basically that that sentencing a juvenile to mandatory life in prison without the possibility of parole was cruel and unusual punishment. So it was... uh, a rights violation. Mm-hmm. So at that point, states realized, you know, we don't really have a mechanism to retry cases like this. We don't really have this, like a set procedure in place because when you sentence someone to life without the possibility of parole, that's kind of, you know, you close the book, the case yep. is done and dusted. Yep. That's, that's it. Yeah. Um, so it took Michigan a couple of years to, to sort of figure out how all of this was going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and Michigan decided that this is going to be a judge-only decision. They weren't going to, to call in new juries. So this is the only one for Ottawa County. Right. So this, this is the only time we're going right. to have this sort of hearing, which makes it um, a little unusual. There have been a few others in West Michigan. I know for sure there have been a couple in, in Kent County. Um, but the judge has to sort of look back at that Supreme Court case, and there's six different factors related to 
the youth of the offender, basically, mm-hmm. and whether those were considered adequately at the time of, of the original sentencing or whether maybe that person should have had a more lenient sentence than the mandatory, you know, lock lock the door and throw away the key. That right, they right. Yeah, because it's an important uh, distinction to make that they're not reviewing the actual facts of the case Correct. because they, they were convicted by a jury and um and so the that's not actually at issue it's just what kind of punishment they should have served assuming that this mechanism for not automatically sentencing them to life without the possibility of parole would have been in place decades ago right yeah and at no point did anyone dispute that juan nunez pulled the trigger and and shot scott anderson and killed him that that's an established fact at this point um, all they were really talking about was, well, does he deserve life in prison or has he learned from his, I don't mean to be flippant when I say youthful mistake, mm-hmm. but right. from his actions as a 16-year-old enough to maybe have some sort of efforts at rehabilitation into society. Right. Now, you and I had a, an interesting conversation yesterday because you had covered the resentencing hearing, um, we heard testimony from people who were part of the original case, yes. people that were at family on both sides. Um, and I had posed a question to you about, you know, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because um, in one sense, we're supposed to sort of turn back time sure. and, and pretend like these were the rules originally. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you can't, there, there, decades have passed. He's been in prison for 22 years, right. and so his um, conduct record was brought into into question um, in terms of how what he's done with his time there, um, how he has communicated with family um, and tried to better himself in in certain ways, um, and so all of those things kind of come into play. And so it's kind of bizarre to sort of talk about it from both ends of that spectrum to determine how he should have been originally sentenced when he was still a teenager. Right, right. And and the kind of fascinating thing about this is, you know, when a judge is looking at this sort of case of, you know, gosh, this this person murdered someone. Right. Um, do we take the frankly potential public safety risk mm-hmm. of letting this person out again? Um, they looked at they looked at his misconduct record, like you said, the uh, Juan Nunez had twenty six misconduct charges. Some of those were for things like you know, being in another inmate's cell without permission or um, he participated in a like a sit-down strike because the food was bad. Things right, that, right. Yes, they're rule violations, but, you know, he's also been there 22 years. Right, right. <laughs> um, but there were also instances where he broke another inmate's nose and he was um, stealing fruit from the kitchens to make fermented alcoholic fruit juice. It's called spud juice is a thing that I learned. I'm sure we'll see that on the Food Network. Yeah, Yeah, somebody hit up the Barefoot Contessa for that recipe. But but there were also some conversations about because his sentence was life without the possibility of parole, there were some things in prison that he wasn't eligible eligible for because that was the sentence. Right. He did get his GED, but the MDOC isn't really going to invest the funds into letting an inmate that's there for life to have continuing education classes or 
some specialty job training, you know, things because there's not a... They would never use it. Right. There's not a right. point if they're right. never going to be... A back out into the working world. Right. right. Exactly. Right. So it was kind of a, a strange what if situation because he has had some jobs in prison. Yes. Um, but it's kind of a, well, what if these opportunities had been afforded to him? Mm-hmm what would he have made of himself? And it was all very theoretical. Which right. Was, it's a tricky question to answer when that's the I, case. And I guess you could probably apply that same, you know, um, existential thinking to his conduct while in prison. Sure. Um, because, you know, you you and I were talking about, you know, if if we personally had, had, you know, been in a situation where there really wasn't any remote possibility that we would um, be out again, sure. would would one just kind of throw in the towel and right, if what, no... do, is there any incentive to actually be a model prisoner exactly. is, is basically what we were kind of theorizing. Right, because it's not like what else can they do to you? Right. You know I mean? so, so did that actually compound the problem sure. of making him unredeemable in the law's eyes? Um, so I think that, that that those are some really interesting questions that that came up. Yeah, for sure, and especially he did it. He did speak on his own behi- behalf actually during the the hearing, and he said, you know, he was by the time the the trial had gone through and everything, he was seventeen by mm-hmm. the time he went into prison, and he said, everyone around me was six, seven years older than me. Everyone was sixty, seventy pounds bigger than me. Right. I was scared, and you know, you you have to kind of figure out well okay, did he misbehave because he was trying to protect himself? Did he misbehave because he still didn't learn his lesson? Right, or was he impressing people so that he would be part of a group? Right, exactly. There's there's some interesting kind of psychological questions that Mm -hmm. come into play. But ultimately, the judge wasn't swayed. Um, You were in court today, and what was the... uh, what was the the read in the room in terms of leading up to Judge Halsing's ruling? Yeah, um, I think that Judge Holsing he he took the, the night last night to go through and read literal decades worth of of documentation and and records of of Juan Nunez and going back through some of the things that that he had said in the original trial and different psychological evaluations after the fact. And Judge Holsing played his cards pretty close to his chest. I think a lot of people in the gallery really weren't sure which Mm -hmm. way he was going to go. Um, And then today when he he started to give his decision, he was very methodical about going through each of the six Miller factors that he had to consider and, and whether he thought any of those were real mitigating factors. He actually said some of them were... Um, so aggressive in in terms of the actual facts of the crime itself that they swayed in the other direction that mm. they, that, that they um, compelled him to have the strongest sentence possible. Okay. Um, but I think he was very aware that because this is such a new procedure, that it very much so is open to an appeal. And mm. that's kind of the expectation here is that there will right. be an appeal. People process. will test the new law. Right. right, exactly. So he was very careful and thorough in explaining his reasoning, each of these six different factors he had to consider and mm-hmm. eventually said that he, he really didn't think that Juan Nunez had one truly felt remorse for what he did and two would be able to be rehabilitated. Mm-hmm. 
And he was quite uh, passionate when he gave at least a portion of his comments, yeah. wasn't he? You, yeah. you were telling me about that. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he was pretty methodical. And then he took a moment to really dive into one of those psychological reports. And, and we have a clip of, of Judge Holsing talking a little bit about, you know, what he really thought Juan Nunez thought about what he did. So here's a little bit of that. The defendant did not display any significant empathy toward the victim or the victim's family. Again, this would be consistent with one who has and his personality disorder. For example, Dr. Kilajewski noted that when the defendant described the crime and his lack of getting money, he was smiling and noted that he made a mistake by hurrying and not making sure that he had obtained the cash, not that he had erred by killing Scott. In other words, when asked about the offense 22 years later, the 38-year-old defendant looked back at his 16-year-old self and said, I have regret for, not for the robbery, not that he used a shotgun, not that he put a shell in the shotgun, not that he had his finger on the trigger, not that he pointed the gun at the victim's heads, not that he pulled the trigger, not that he killed Scott. Rather, the 38-year-old defendant expressed regret that he rushed through the robbery and did not take the time to make sure that he had, had obtained money. In reviewing the factors, the broad circumstances of the crime discussed above are not a mitigating factor. Those of that is the specific heinous acts, which I referenced Judge Fleischer's opinion to I mention that so you know what factor I'm talking about. Rather, two of the sub-factors, leadership and lack of peer pressure, are in fact aggravating factors. The defendant's family and home environment is not a mitigating factor. The impact of youth upon the judicial process, i.e. interactions with the police, prosecution, and his counsel, are not mitigating factors. This leaves the hallmark features of youth, impulsiveness, immaturity, failure to appreciate consequences along with the defendant's pre- and post-conviction record as those factors relate to rehabilitation. The court finds that this crime was not a product of immaturity, impetuosity, or failure to appreciate the risks and consequences. Rather, it was the product of his diagnosed antisocial personality disorder, which, according to the two psychiatrists, still exists and continues to manifest itself in an antisocial behavior, misconduct, preparation for violence, and lack of empathy for others. So how did the, the families react to the ruling? You said that there was actually um, quite, quite a response on the Anderson side. There was, yeah. So, I mean, like I said, it was a very emotional courtroom. Mm -hmm. um, and it was kind of a, a divided courtroom in, in the fact that one side of the gallery was jam-packed full of the Nunez family. Mm -hmm. And then on the other side, absolutely not talking to the other side was the Anderson family. Um, the Nunez family, while we expect them to, to file an appeal, um, they declined to comment. They, their attorney didn't really want to give a statement to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were, you know, they're probably regrouping. Right. right. Exactly. Kind of, kind of, um, circling the horses, mm -hmm. but the Anderson family, talked about how painful it was to relive the details of the case sure. to, um, you know, not really be able to move on because this had been hanging over their heads and now they're going to be dealing with the appeal process. And, um, Scott Anderson's mother, Mary said that all she really wants at this point is peace for her family so that they can remember her son in a context other than a courtroom, right. which I thought was um, a very frank way of putting it. Mm -hmm. uh, they said, you know, they will absolutely be at 
the courtroom for for the appeals process and they you know we'll, we'll do everything that they can do and testify as articulately as they can to to keep their son's killer in prison but um, it's a really difficult process that they can't just put this behind them and officially kind of close that chapter and, right. and move on because they know that this isn't over in the the legal proceedings well and it, it sounded like the Andersons, the the mother and even the brother to some extent, are still open to trying to forgive uh, Mr. Nunez for um, the crime that he did commit. They made some comments about how, you know, we really haven't heard an apology and it would be real, you know, we we really want to feel that you're actually sorry for what you did. So that gives a little bit of hope for some healing perhaps after all of this is said and done. Yeah, there were several members of the Anderson family and actually um, uh, another witness who was there the night of the murder, Lisa Menezes. Um, and they all said that they've never really heard sincere remorse from mm-hmm. Juan Nunez. They've, they've heard some statements in the context of a courtroom statement Um, But especially Mary Anderson, she said, you know, there's a lot of ways to reach out to me, to contact me. And I've never really been formally asked for forgiveness. She said, Mm -hmm. you know, she's a a Christian woman and she believes in forgiveness, but she struggles with giving that forgiveness when, when Juan Nunez has never formally apologized and asked for that from her. Mm -hmm. Um, it was kind of an interesting situation because a lot of times when I cover murder cases, families are are pretty wary of talking to the media. They're not quite ready to, you know, have, have their business out there. Right. You know, it's very emotional and I totally understand that. Um, but the Anderson family has had 22 years to figure out what they want to say. Right. Um, and they, they were very clear in that, you know, not only did they want their son's killer to remain in, in prison the rest of his life, but that they also wanted him to use his life for something good because their son doesn't have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. They wanted Juan Nunez to, you know, continue mentoring his nieces and nephews like he talked about and mentoring other prisoners and, and having some sort of positive impact because they felt really strongly that was something that he had taken away from the world when he killed their son. Mm -hmm. And I understand that the Sentinel actually came up in some of the court proceedings because we had, after the court had issued its ruling about revisiting these cases, we had done some reporting to contact the Andersons and the Nunezes and they sort of gave their account of like what their perspective was leading up to the crime. Right. And in the aftermath of the original trial, and I, I understand that that was actually tried to, be, it was used in some context to try to show that Juan Nunez was remorseful for what he did. It was, yeah. Um, so after that 2016 ruling, right, we we reached out to these families and um, my predecessor <laughs> reached out and, and interviewed Juan Nunez uh, in prison, and he apologized in that article mm-hmm. um, from 2016 to the the family, and the the court had a conversation about whether, you know, an apology in the local paper was adequate enough to count as real remorse toward the family, right? 
Um, and the Anderson family definitely didn't feel that it was. Right. They wanted, you know, a direct outreach to them rather than to the paper in the hopes that they would maybe see it potentially. Right. Uh, and there, you know, there is a, I think, a difference of intent mm-hmm. in, in terms of that sort of contact. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was kind of interesting. That it's, it's, very, it's very <laughs> meta. Right, right, it's very meta. I was sitting there writing an article thinking, oh, yeah, <laughs> I do. I do remember that front page. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, just kind of from top to bottom, it was a really fascinating judicial process in that it's was brand new for the county and we won't ever see it again. Right. So what are next steps in terms of um, assuming that, that Nunez files an appeal, right. when is the next time that we're probably going to see another step in, in this story? Gosh, um, it's a great question. So he would be appealing the resentencing mm-hmm. uh, to the Michigan Court of Appeals. It could be... It's kind of all over the place, but I would say between a year to two years, I mean, it's a pretty slow moving right. process, especially because it's not like he's going anywhere. Right. I mean, right. He's, he's in prison. That's right. You know, that's his address forever. And, and how and how many cases were were there statewide for so, this? Yeah. So statewide, there's around 300. OK. Um, I don't know exactly how many were just in West Michigan. Right. But, but assuming the that they all got reaffirmed, which is possible. Right then they could have 300 appeals fairly within this similar time frame. Right. So that'll clog up the works a little bit right. too. And will also be fairly expensive. Yeah. So there's that too. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, we look forward to, um, to seeing some resolution to this case and I know that you'll be there for every minute of it. Absolutely. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we appreciate it. Oh, of course. Happy to be there. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's wraps up another episode of from the newsroom and we'll see you next time.